This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Today on Late Boomers, we have a very special guest, Ron Lucas, a celebrated and awarded world-class ventriloquist, who is also a friend of mine. It would not be a stretch to say that this man is now considered the greatest ventriloquist in the world. And I'm Mary Elkins. Here's a great quote about Ron. In the world of Lucas, it seems as if everything can have a life and a mind of its own. Not only do his puppets talk to him and talk back to him, so does the microphone, his hand, his foot, and anything else that comes into his proximity. Ron has been awarded so many titles. He is the world's best ventriloquist, according to the New York Times, the New York Post, the Times London, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Times Picayune, New Orleans, the El Paso Herald Post, and he's the ventriloquist of the year by the American Society of Ventriloquists. And he was Atlantic City Magazine's Entertainer of the Year and Gold Cabaret Awards San Francisco Entertainer of the Year and mm-hmm. so much more. He was voted the man who stole the show by Comic Relief's American Comedy Festival, ABC, and he's received many, many more awards. He does corporate speaking with his puppets and has many corporate clients, such as Apple, IBM, Sony, Motorola, and many others. And he loves performing on cruise ships for the Royal Caribbean Cruises. There are so many other things to point out about Ron, but let's bring him into the show. Say hello to our listeners, Ron. <laughs> hey, folks. How are you? It's, it's, it's <laughs> wonderful to be a ventriloquist on radio. <laughs> I know. Not much reward. <laughs> Do you have a Buffalo Billy or Scorch with you today by any chance? Well, they're, they, they, they're off camera, but they're here. Okay. Uh, Ron, uh, are you here? Oh, where are you? Uh, and over here. Right? No, sit down. He's in the tub. Sit down. No, I don't. Oh, sit down. Does he splash a lot? Yes. Well, actually, <laughs> that's true. He's made of foam, so he just kind of soaks his stuff up like a sponge. Oh. <laughs> oh. Bad. <laughs> well, they sound like they would love to be on on this show. Um, it's possible. I, you know, it's funny. I, I love putting voices in very strange places, like um, <clears throat> a bottle of glue. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> what, 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 Ron? Our did listeners. He... he took the top off briefly off the glue. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got louder. Little... A little glue got out, that's all. <laughs> well, on a similar note, we always like to know how our guests started on their career path. Did you know about ventriloquism as a child, and how did you begin? It's a hobby that got out of hand. <laughs> yeah? It's true. It's true. I was uh, a kid when I was uh, a child, and <laughs> 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 it's, a, it's so long ago I can barely remember uh, I saw a ventriloquist on television, and I asked my grandfather what that was, and he said that's ventriloquism. Now, he was Ed, he was pointing to, on, on the black and white TV screen, the great Edgar Bergen, so that goes mm-hmm. way back in time, mm-hmm. uh, and Charlie McCarthy. So he took me to the library in the small town of uh, Hamilton, Texas, and there was no books on ventriloquism. And I was spending Christmas with my grandparents, and when I finally got back to New Mexico, which is where we were living at the time, I asked my dad to take me to the library and get a book on ventriloquism, and that didn't exist either. But they did have a book in the state capitol. So the librarian wrote off to the state capitol. I mean, this is long before texting and faxing and stuff like that. And I got this book. It came to my house, and I was entitled to it for 60 days, two months. And I, to this day, I've, somewhere around this office, 
is my handwritten notes on this book called Song, Speech, and Ventriloquism. Wow. <laughs> one, of the, one of my big inspirations, my parents saw that I was really interested. So for Christmas, I got a record, a 33 and a third record, had a tiny little portable record player in the corner of my room, and it was called Instant Ventriloquism by Jimmy Nelson. And there was 18 lessons, and I would come home from school and do at least one lesson a day. They warned you not to do too many or it would hurt your voice. So oh, I did all the lessons, and uh, I got to the point where I could talk without moving my lips. Uh, by the time I was 10, I was getting pretty good. Um, in high school, I actually learned to do those faraway voices. So I used to call myself out of class in high school on the public address system. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and go home. Because I, I, I was stupid. I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, I, 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 like Johnny Carson said, I, I, was, I was so naive, I'd go behind the barn and do nothing. You know, um, <laughs> and, and so I'd go home. And eventually the teachers found out. I don't know how they found out, but they found out. And then it backfired. I had two more years of high school. Every sound, every noise that went on outside the classroom, I got blamed for. If a dog was barking, if a car backfired, I got blamed. And I had an English teacher who was paranoid because she knew I could throw my voice. And one day there was noise going on. We're taking a test and I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's a time test. I got to get all the answers. And she, I don't even know what she's talking about. But so, some noise she heard and she starts going, Mr. Lucas, stop that. And I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just stop making that noise. And so I just kept taking my test. And eventually she, she blew up. She said, you're going to the principal's office right now, young man. You go. And I, I grabbed my books. I got up. I left on one side of the classroom. The dog is barking on the other. She's in between. And she's going, well, damn, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And she not, she's really stupid to be a teacher, but there you go. <laughs> but well, she, he's really, really good, which he is. She was yeah. from the South. <laughs> well. All this, all this happened in Texas, and we know how bright Texas are. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about the history of ventriloquism? Because I know you know quite a bit about it. Sure. I'm not the historian, but I've been studying it for a long time. The, the, the really good historian is a man named Tom Ladshaw. We actually have a ventriloquist museum uh, outside of Cincinnati. It's in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. It's, mm -hmm. it's just across the river from Cincinnati, and he resides there, and uh, we have a museum of, of figures, dummies, but, but they call them figures. That, that's the technical word for anything that has a, a moving mouth. Uh, I call them characters since I use a lot of different styles, but Tom is, Tom is the expert. But I had learned that um, in the Bible, um, someone had pointed this out. I, I, it, there is Paul and Silas were in Athens heading to the Agora to preach. And there was a woman who was possessed by the spirit of divination, and she was screaming to the population, "Hey, you know, th these are these are men of God. The, you know, the, the, these are these are actual you know people you know who, who are in contact with God." And apparently, Paul and Silas got so fed up that after a couple of days of this, Paul pulled the demon out of her, and now she couldn't divine things. Now she couldn't tell people's fortunes, and it was the first time Paul and Silas were thrown into jail because the woman was a slave. She was a slave, and she that's how the, the, her owners made money. So Paul ruined her you know, by pulling the demon out of her that could, that could pre predict the future. Now, I, I remember this story because I went to parochial school. I, I was raised Lutheran. However, someone showed me a Bible from the 1900s, I mean 1899, mm -hmm. and it said she was possessed by the spirit of ventriloquism. Oh, in 1899, they rewrote 1899. It. That's what it was in the King James Version of the Bible. She was possessed with the spirit of ventriloquism. And what I know about ventriloquism, it was also part of the magical arts that the, going all the way back to the Egyptians, you know, that they were able to do magic tricks and control the population. So why not make a statue of a god talk? Or, or do something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, that and, and there's, there's stories about um, uh, the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, being able to talk without moving her mouth. But at the time, ventriloquism, or in, in the Greek word was gastrimitos, ventriloquist is the Latin word, it meant belly speaker, because they thought all the sound was formed in the stomach and was only controlled by the neck. This is how, what the ancients oh. believed. So a, a ventriloquist was a person who spoke from their stomach and not from their mouth. Oh, without using... So, mm. so technically, I am a belly talker which is not the same thing as an after-dinner speaker. 
<laughs> oh, very funny. I think. <laughs> and you don't move your mouth at all. It's extraordinary. Well, I don't. I don't want to get too adult here, but that was. Uh, I used to be my come on line when I was in stand-up comedy clubs back in my twenties and thirties. I'd, I'd say, uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 I try to, you know, hit on some woman and explain, you know, try very carefully and delicately that as a ventriloquist, I have a highly trained tongue. <laughs> <laughs> And then Mary married me and discovered my lips don't move enough to make her happy. <laughs> that, and I talk in my sleep, which means the voice comes from under the bed and frightens the cats. Oh, I bet she loves that. No. <laughs> she's, she, she's up to here with ventriloquism. We've had a pretty normal life since the COVID crisis started. Uh, I've been home. I, I left a cruise ship on March 15th of last year. And the whole time I've been home, I haven't really done any serious work. Uh, however, my big hobby is backpacking and camping, and I've done a lot of social distancing. Oh, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mostly north of Los Angeles on part of the Pacific Crest Trail. I've hiked different segments of that. I've also uh, become very enamored with a, a very uh, a for national forest that's not super popular. Uh, or maybe people just don't know about it, called the Los Padres National Forest. So if you go north on the five, and you know there's a little town called Fraser Park in mm -hmm. Gorman, you'll you'll yep. pass them as you're going out of the 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 pass, out of the, the grapevine, um, and and you go to the to the ocean. That's where the Los Padres and Sespe Wilderness is. And I've discovered uh, springs, hot springs. I've discovered creeks, and I, I don't like carrying water because it's so heavy. So I like hiking to water sources. And I've taken a few people. In, in fact, there was a guy from National Geographic, a photographer, and he paid me $200. He heard about me from a friend, paid me $200 just to take him overnight camping. <laughs> hiking. So hiking. you have we, we, a good sideline. Yep. And I'm, I'm thinking, I could, you know, $200 every, every year or so, I could make some money. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> well, I have to ask you this question. Uh, before the next question, I really want to ask you, but did you throw your voice and imitate animals and scare your camping partners? Oh, that's a great idea. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, I I'll have, move I on. Had, I had not thought about that. That's, that's, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so used to being a ventriloquist, I forget all the things I can do. That's a good idea. Real, yeah, well, I, there you go. I, I, I need to set up some like lights and do a whole alien encounter. I think that would be more fun. Oh, that yeah. would be interesting. Yeah. What did you feel was your first big break? And did it lead naturally to your next gig? Or was it hard to get going with your very unusual career pursuit? I've had so many first big breaks. And everyone did lead to something else. Um, I, most of my time, most of my time, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. My dad was ex-military and he designed missile parts. So we were always near the White Sands Missile Range. So we lived, um, uh, uh, up until my third grade, we lived in El Paso. Then we moved to Socorro, a little tiny town about 75 miles south of Albuquerque. Socorro was the ancient Indian word for help. Hmm. And help? it needed it. Yeah, um. help. <laughs> and in uh, Socorro was about the time I was uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade. And it was a great town to be growing up in. I mean, you had a bicycle, you could go anywhere in the universe. You know, it was all in one one tiny little one-horse town. It was really cool. And there a lot of camping, a lot of, uh, it, it was on the edge between a plains and going up into a pine forest. Mm. So there, there was a lot of fun stuff to do as a kid. And I joined Boy Scouts there. And then we moved to Yuma, Arizona. And that was a little bit of a culture shock. There was a Marine base, and I didn't know why we were there, but I found out later that my dad designed the feedback looping radar for the Patriot missile system. Wow. So later, after I graduated high school, because we eventually looped back and came back to El Paso. So I graduated high school in El Paso. And after I graduated, um, he had quit being a civil servant and retired, but he also joined the Naval Reserve. And he told me it was because he wanted to have another uh, in retirement income. But that wasn't the truth. We found out later that uh, they were putting Patriot missiles on ships. Oh, mm. so he be It was so just he top, secret. It, top secret. Yes. Yeah. yeah, when he when, when he died uh, about five years ago, all this came out. And I remember my brother, I, I was the, 
the, the Sheldon of the family. My brother was like the biker, you know. Okay. <laughs> my, my, my brother Steve, my younger brother. I, I was born an only child, but truly pisses off my brother Steve. Mm. And I bet. Yeah. That and, really does. <laughs> and his, his friends came up to us and said, we, we heard the whole story about your dad. Man, he's really a badass because of all the stuff he was able to do. But I remember he taught me how to read schematics, you know, the, the, the stuff about wiring. I mean, when I was a kid, I was building radios and things like that under his tutelage. And I was you know, my brother did that. My brother did that too. And now that I think, you know, our dad worked for the government at Naval Weapons Center and his stuff was all secret too. Wow. So I guess my brother, he was showing my brother how to build stuff and yep. electronics and stuff. Mm -hmm. But his stuff was all secret. Similar thing. The first time I ever heard this phrase was with my dad. He was on the late night. He was at the dinner table. Everything was swept away. He laid out these blueprints, these schematics for electronics. And he was working on it and changing some configuration. And I leaned over his shoulder and studied a little too long. And he said... I may have to kill you. Oh. And Ew. I went, okay. <laughs> I was gone. Ran her head. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, I've so loved watching you over the years in your live shows. And I've been privileged to do so many times because my husband, Ken Cragen, managed you. And I got to see your live Vegas shows a ton of times. And you always got such good reviews in Las Vegas. And do you have a couple of good, great stories about being in Las Vegas all those years? Uh, well, every, every, everyone's got the biggest stories. I don't know if anything uh, great. Um, I had been there, uh, before I even met Ken, I had been in the Follies for Cher. Hmm. So I was there for like four years. Then I went to England to do my TV series, came mm -hmm. back, um, did a couple of things that Ken, no, I, I had shifted from one manager to Ken, and he, he picked up when I went to work at the Rio. So that's probably where you saw me. Yes. At, at, at the Rio, yeah. Many times, uh, yeah. And so, so I was there for almost nine years. Oh, I didn't and realize it was that long. Great. Now, now Terry Fader, who's a good friend of mine, he went almost immediately from um, America's Got Talent right into a show at the Mirage and stayed mm -hmm. there for 10 years. Mm. And I congratulated him for, you know, beating my record. Hmm. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's still like six other years that I've been doing shows in Vegas on top of that. <laughs> so uh, I think I am, um, and just we'll keep it in this podcast, I think I am probably the longest running <laughs> non-continuous ventriloquist show in the history of Las Vegas. Excellent. That's a good award. Yeah. yeah Give yourself. Exactly. It, 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 feeds, it feeds my ego just a little. Yeah. Uh, well, your ego should be very healthy. You're really, really good. And oh, your video, you. oh, well, thanks. Your video clips on YouTube are really fabulous. And we Thank want you. our listeners to watch them. Tell us about performing for the Queen of England and for President Reagan and uh, President Clinton. The, the Queen of England was interesting. That was back about, I think, in 1988 or 89. So we're, we're going back in time here. I mean, her hair was still dark. <laughs> And it was a fundraiser. Everything she did was a fundraiser for something. And this was a fundraiser for the actor's home in England, in the hmm. UK. Oh. Um, and, and every once every four years, she they would do this every year, but she would give her personage once every four years, and some other member of the royal family would do the other three. So I just got lucky. I mean, I, I, that year that she was there, I was there. And um, she, I did my show. Uh, at the time, I just had pretty much my cowboy puppet and a routine where I take a sock off my foot and turn it into a puppet. And that was what they really wanted. The BBC was wanting that sock routine. And I kept saying, I got to set it up with something. So I, I started it with the cowboy puppet, put him away pretty quickly, and then did the whole routine with the stocking, with, with the sock. So when the show was over, and it's a long show, I mean, it's like three hours long. Uh, they have a big receiving line, photographers and everybody. I was standing in line. They told me right where to stand. And behind me was my wife, Mary, but we were engaged. So technically, I couldn't introduce her as Mrs. Lucas. Oh. So she could just stand behind and look. You know, that was pretty much, and she was thrilled with that. She was fine. You know, she, I mean, she's that close to the queen. Just, I was, I was blocking her. And the queen came down the line and thanked everybody. Um, she, 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 her hands were gloved and, and she, she shook hands. And, and then um, as she almost stepped away from me, 
her equerry, the man who was doing all the introduction, said, by the way, Mr. Lucas is the man uh, with a talking sock routine. And, and, and she goes, she came back to me. And she goes, oh, talking stockings. Do you have any more, do you have any more talking laundry at home? <laughs> I love it. That's classic. Was, She's very witty. I, I said, your, your majesty is, is very witty and very funny, you know, and, and, and she smiled and moved on. So the, the, ta the tag to this was, uh, I've never really told the story. I'll tell you why. The tag was, when I finished, we went back to our dressing room. And the theaters in London, this was the London Palladium. It's huge. But the theaters are about that. The, the dressing rooms are about that big. They're really, really tiny. There's, there's almost no backstage space whatsoever. They put all their money into seating. Mm -hmm. And so we're in this tiny little dressing room, all to myself. And in the corner was one of the Queen's equerries. Uh, I, th I think his name was Nigel. He, they, she had a lot of her attendants all throughout the theater for various and sundry reasons. Okay. But he was just reading the paper. He had the paper in front of him and he was reading. And my wife said, okay, we, we got in the dressing room. The show was over, closed the door. And she goes, what did you notice? I go, no, 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 you first. What did you notice? She goes, what did you notice? And I said, I noticed that her posture was perfect. I mean, it was like, she was very straight back, shoulders back. Her skin was flawless. I mean, it was beautiful, beautiful skin. And, and I said, what did you notice? And she says, well, I'm a woman. I noticed that the emeralds in her necklace went all the way around the back of the neck. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't stop at the shoulders like most people's would. They, the, the, the whole emerald necklace circled her circled yeah. back. And she said, what did she say to you? And I told Mary about, you know, the, do you have any more talking laundry at home? And I said, this is going to make a really good um, PR quote. And at that moment, the newspaper rattled. Big rattle noise. And I look over, and there's Nigel looking up not looking at us and says, there are those who feel when they've had a private moment with Her Majesty the Queen, it's something to cherish and keep to yourself. <laughs> oh, and oh, subtlety. I, I, um, I got it immediately. Mary didn't. Later she said, well, of all the nerve, and I said, no, he was saying that if I could keep my own counsel and not talk about this, there'll be more. And there were. Mm. I, did, I later did shows for Princess Margaret. Uh, I did a show... It's not recorded uh, for Princess Diana and the kids, Diana and the kids. Mm -hmm. I, I, did, I did a lot of shows for royalty. And by the way, once I got on the royalty circuit, I was doing shows for the Crown Prince of Dubai, uh, uh, the, the, the Queen of the Netherlands. I mean, it, I, they were all free, but I ended up doing all these shows. And mm -hmm. next thing you know, I'm being called to Washington to do a show for President Mrs. Reagan. Mm-hmm. Tell us about and, that. And that story is intriguing because nobody gets this. I finished the show, and I'm, I'm, you know, young Ron Lucas standing next to young David Copperfield. We're in the receiving line. Now, my big joke at that time, my cowboy puppet, was he looked at the president in the front row and said, do you know who that is? And I said, that's the leader of the free world. And Billy says, yeah, and she brought her husband. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and I remember that. always, from my point of view, he went back laughing, and she grabbed her stomach and went forward. It was like watching this kind of seesaw action between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And now we're, I'm in the receiving line, and he stands in front of me, and he's a big man. He goes, well, I, I, I just don't know how you do what you do. And I'm praying that's a compliment. I'm saying, well, thank you, Mr. President. It was an honor to be here. And, and he moves on. And about he goes about three people away, and she catches up. And she sticks out her hand. She goes, Mr. Lucas, that was so much fun. Thank you so much for helping raise money for Ford's Theater. And then she steps over to David Copperfield. Now, at that point, I'm done. But she comes back to me. And David looks at me like, what did you say? And, and, she, goes, and she goes, how do you do what you do? And I immediately realized that even though she was three or four people in the distance, she was listening to everything her husband was saying. That's what impressed me the most. Because because he, mm. he asks how do you do what you do and then she asks that she she underlined it so I snapped out of it and I said well it's all done with mirrors which to this day has angered David Copperfield because <laughs> he was on my side <laughs> nah, nah, he's okay he but he's but he okay. did he he did one of these weird weird you know head turns like what are you talking about mm. yeah, what, what about, about President, President Clinton? Clinton oh well. Um, 
we were in the again same thing ford theater fundraiser and we have a cocktail party at the white house before the show which means i'd love to have a drink but i, don't, I dare not okay so we've had rehearsal i've changed into my tux we, we, we go over to the White House. We're in the blue room of the White House, and we're standing in a circle on the carpet. And somewhere outside this area is about 275 attendees for the show. The show's going to tape around 4 o'clock, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we're all dressed in tuxes. And this is in the winter, so, you know, we're not baking or anything. And... Um, um, they come in and they make the rounds. Now, there's a whole Bill Maher story in here. I don't even need to go into that one. <laughs> but he was he he was in the he was part of the show too, uh, Bill Maher, and he was funny. And, and but the the president made the rounds and he knew everybody. He knew Bill. He knew uh, Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi's wife. These were all people who were standing in the circle, and he didn't know me. And I said, Mr. President, my name is Ron Lucas. I'm a ventriloquist, and um, um, I, uh, I'll be performing today. And he goes, well, that, well, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> and, um, um, and she couldn't have been nicer. She seemed very interested in what I was doing and, and why, and, and why I was performing for this. And I explained, I had done also, uh, uh, shows for the, you know, the other presidents. So they, um, um, they, we, once they, once, once they start taking photographs with all the people in that room, which is only like about five couples, then we're dismissed. And they open the double doors and all the attendees for this fundraiser, because they put a lot of money into it, come in and have their photo taken with the president and the first lady. So we leave on one side and these people start filing in. And Mary goes, did they take our photo? I said, yeah. She goes, I wasn't paying attention. I bet my mouth was open. My mom's going to kill me. <laughs> and I said, no, you look fine. And she goes, how do they even know where to send it? And I said, they're the government. They know. <laughs> I, I, I said, I've done this once for the, the, the Reagans, and it all showed up. <clears throat> and I said, but if you're nervous about it, we can get our photo taken again. She goes, how? I said, see this line? This is the tail end of the people who are about to come around and have their photo with the president. Let's, let's get in the line again. She goes, oh, we can't do that. And I says, he won't even remember us. Oh. So... <laughs> You already know. We I know his last, memory. No, I know we his were memory. The last people, and the moment we stepped up to him, he said, "You know, my wife and I saw the Broadway show Chicago. There's a whole ventriloquist scene in there." Mm-hmm. Oh. He knows. And I go, he has a computer wow. brain for everyone he's ever met. Wow. And I said, Mr. President, my wife is afraid that she had taken a bad photo. Can we do it again? Because, oh, get the photographer. So I go and I turn over to this Marine photographer. I sort of have to cross the room to get his attention. And I come back. And in the middle of this room, this tall, massive man has my wife's face in her giant hands, stroking her cheek, going, you could never take a bad photo. You have lovely features. (laughs) (laughs) And, And now the husband in me kicks in. I go, I'm thinking to myself, hey, buddy, that's my, and I look around, and I'm watching all the Secret Service people look at me. <laughs> and I go, oh, this is how the game is played. So I step forward timidly and said, Mr. President, whenever you're ready. So we take our photo. Mary has a perfect photo. My face is grimaced. You know. <laughs> and, and we walk out, and she goes, my, my little feminist wife is going, oh, he's amazing. He's one of the most amazing men I've ever met. <laughs> and I, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying I voted for that bastard. I can't believe I voted for that bastard. Oh, Ron. Oh. No, it's, it's, it's okay. Every, then, uh, every woman feels that way that's met him face to face. I totally feel the same way. And people who haven't met him. I've met him several times, and he's always it. like that. He, he makes you the center of his he universe. Does. He never he does. looks past you who's in line. Well, the, the the I had the last laugh because the whole Monica Lewinsky thing happened two weeks later. <laughs> oh, gee, you sure did. <laughs> uh, you know what, Ron? You were in a movie I was in, The Twelve Dogs of Christmas Two, That's The right. Great Puppy Rescue. And tell us about your character in that because I think it was the time period was the 1940s. You were sitting on the most beautiful train I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That was really, you're in the opening shots. I know you're throughout the movie, but you were in the opening shots. You played a, a wealthy woman asking the little girl if she's going to town. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and, it was, and, and, and uh, when they started shooting that, they got lucky. They had snow. Oh, yeah. 
Remember yeah, that? Yeah. that? That was really great. Uh, the character I played was a theater manager. And, and, and again, you know, it, it's, it's like a lot of things in show business. Who you know can get you where you want to be, but what you know is going to keep you there. Hopefully my acting wasn't horrible, but Ken got me this role. In fact, I think mm -hmm. they wrote it for me, of a manager who was a ventriloquist of, of this theater. The kids want to come into this theater and do a fundraiser to save, save the dogs. And I'm a little hesitant at first. And I play the character named um, uh, Edgar. I think it's Edgar, Edgar Borgens. Borgenstein or something like, like that. A, like a takeoff on Edgar Bergen. Yeah. It was supposed yep. to be. It was supposed to be. I think the, the actual joke got cut. But it was, it was um, um, there was a love interest who uh, uh, sort of uh, tricked me into opening the theater to the kids. And then later I had to shut it down and had to cry on camera. Uh, mm. and, which, which I was terrible at <laughs> because I'd hurt the kids' feelings, uh, oh. and they still had the show. They still had the show anyway. And then in the end, I think um, I'm, I've been told uh, by the uh, the woman who was psychic, you know, to, that I have a I have a career in radio, and I'm thinking that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And then it's supposed to cut away to Edgar Bergen, you know, and his radio career, but that never happened, and that was okay. I enjoyed that shoot more than any movie shoot I've ever been a part of. It was so much fun hanging out. Uh, in that part of Utah uh, with predominantly LDS people, you know, the, all mm -hmm. these Mormons, very sweet, very giving, very kind people. Uh, and I remember the theater that we used, it was a Masonic Hall. And yes, he, it was and, gorgeous. And they did a lot of shooting. They did a roller rink in the basement. They, 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 they turned an office into a bank. Uh, they did a lot of shooting in that Masonic Hall, and it had this beautiful theater with uh, the stars and the, up in the sky. It was really, really fun. So I will always remember that. I'm very grateful to your husband for putting me in that show. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. But I did get to do a little ventriloquism with one of my characters. Yeah. Uh, um, a, wooden, a wooden dummy with, a, with what we call a slot jaw. Oh. Mm -hmm. yeah. What were some of your favorite TV performances? I bet you have a lot of funny stories from those, too. Did any of your uh, performers, did any of the performers on those shows ever get into an argument with any of your puppets? That's an interesting question. Wow. Um, I've done, you know, I'm, I'm, I, on Saturday I turned 67. And Happy birthday. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm starting to notice that I'm not remembering anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like Paul Winchell, going back to the beginning of this, that he was the ventriloquist whose book I, I copied. Uh, oh, of course. Of yeah, course. Paul, Winch Paul Winchell. Um, um, Mary and I were playing Jeopardy the other day, and I knew all the answers. They just weren't coming fast enough. <laughs> so, so if I'm not a candidate for Adderall, I think I may, I may be wearing a CPAP pretty soon. Um, oh. I have got so many stories about people, and I've never really had any conflicts with any other performers. Um, my, I, I've gone back and forth between stand-up comedy and being a circus act. I mean, I did a high-wire act for Circus of the Stars. Does anybody remember that? No. Yeah. TV, TV series? I did a high-wire oh, act I know this Billy series. I don't Billy. remember. Billy sitting on my shoulders, bitching and kvetching the whole way across the high wire. Oh my so goodness! I can walk a high wire, but it took a lot of training. How how high was it? Um, when we finally shot it, it was forty feet up with a net. Huh. Ooh. Since since then, I've duplicated it. I've gone twenty feet without a net. Oh, and, right. And and That's still I still high. I was using a balancing pole, and I don't want to take anything away from the, the – see, to me, all of us who were learning to do circus acts were just trying to learn to get through that one moment. You know, what I grew was in a tremendous appreciation for circus performers who go out and do dangerous things, whether they feel like it that day or not. Mm -hmm. You know, they do it time and time and time and time again. I was just trying to get through my one performance. But I did a um, – uh, my host was Dick Clark. Oh, he, he was my introduction. He, he was charming. He was so cool. And um, I, I remember there's a photograph somewhere in my, in my archives where we had got photographed after it was over. And I looked like a mess. My makeup was running. My hair was up like this. Um, I was 40 feet up in a net and there was no air conditioning at that level. So all oh. the theater lights were just heating everything up. I was afraid I was going to miss a step. Uh, on the wire because uh, but I had a bouncing pole and I didn't want like I said I didn't want to uh, uh, give a secret away but if you have a bouncing pole and you know what to do with it 
there's no excuse for falling. Oh. It's it, it's really very stabilizing. Hmm. Uh. And many many times the performers try to do everything they can to make it look hard, when in reality it's not. Now I also at that time rode a bicycle across the wire. Oh. Yeah, and that You're was way too brave. That was that was harder for me, and that got cut from the from the end scene because I was starting to ad lib, and I, I I had Billy sitting on my shoulders. I was remote controlling him. I had one switch with my finger that would make his mouth open and close, and mm-hmm. he had he had a little balancing. onboard. Balancing. He had yeah he had, he had I had a harness on and he was sitting on the harness, but you couldn't see it. It just looked like a kid. A little kid sitting here with his feet stuck out next to my ears, and he's up here talking. The cowboy puppet, he's, he's over my head. And his head had slight movement from side to side. It was automatic. It was, it was like on a, on a computer. It would just go from side to side. So he looked a little bit alive. So I'm trying to tell him to stay still because he's, he's messing with my balance. And he said, is this dangerous? And I said, yes, it's dangerous. Please don't try this at home. And I don't know why I did this, but I had the puppet say, then why are you bugging me with this? Why don't you use a live child? Oh, Ooh, and they didn't that like piece, it. That no, because it was sponsored by Pillsbury, I think. Yeah. And it was a family. It was a family sponsor, so they thought that was uh, bashing kids. Oh. So, so they they did half my segment, which is me walking across and walking backwards, and that was it. That's, 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 that's so the, the sponsors guy. had an argument with one of your. The puppets. sponsors didn't want didn't like the line. You did have an argument with one of the puppets but it was the sponsor that didn't like the puppet oh billy and i wanted general, to ask i'm you, sorry G- general mills it was general mills was the sponsor oh, of the show okay yeah. but the lots of uh, cereal, cereal flour everything you know so so they thought it was anti-family hmm. oh dear i was going to ask you who your favorite puppet is or is that like trying to pick a pick a favorite child maybe you can't um, say uh, well, you've seen Scorch, and you know how techno- uh, technological he is. He's, he's a I beautiful love, character. I love Scorch. Uh, for those of who are just listening, I have a very high-tech dragon. He sits on my knees, and he comes to life. He breathes. His, he twiddles his thumbs. His ears move. His eyes move. Everything moves. And a lot of it's electronic. I mean, a lot of it's somebody off-camera with a remote control device making the face move. Meanwhile, my hand is going into the mouth, and I'm providing him with mouth movement and dialogue. So mm-hmm. I can ad lib anytime I want, and then whoever's remote controlling is sort of like dancing with me. In Japan, it's called bunraku, where you have more than one puppeteer. But to me, it was more like a dance where I'm leading, and whoever is remote controlling is sort of following my actions. <laughs> so if Scorch goes, "What's all, what's out over to the left?" the guy will move the eyes, you know, to the left, and turn, I'll turn the head, that kind of thing. So we mm-hmm. we had a good, I, me and my electronic puppeteer had a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you but, have the same person the whole time in Vegas? Well, I'm saying, uh, yes, I did, for the mo- most part. Usually it was uh, the lighting guy. Mm-hmm. Oh. Production stage manager or the lighting guy, those two guys. He was heavy. Scorch weighs almost 30 pounds with that all the is. batteries and everything else. So my favorite puppet is the cowboy puppet because he weighs four pounds. Mm. So I can put Billy on my knee and, and do the whole show. And Billy so flips over backwards all the time and stuff. Uh, yeah, he 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 he's, he does impressions of, of you know people who uh, either have bad balance or drunk, and he keeps falling off my knee. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's yeah. he's hysterical. I got into I, I got into trouble one time with my mother-in-law of all places, where I I did the Tonight Show, and he was doing impressions. He was saying the President of the United States, and he comes he goes forward and comes up with his foot in his mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then, and then he said, and then he said, now Ted Kennedy, and then he falls off my knee. Oh. I, I saw that on YouTube. And my mother-in-law was livid. Mm. She was a huge mm. Kennedy fan, and she goes, "You can't mess with that family like that," you know. Mm. <laughs> well, rest her soul. Yeah, your career spans several decades. So you were on the Tonight Show with different mm-hmm. hosts and probably even guest hosts, and you did the Letterman Show many, many times. What stands out to you as the most fun or challenging? I, I did the Tonight Show six times. I only did the Letterman Show once. Hmm. Oh, only once. The, the, he did a. Uh, I think it surprised David. I'd known David for years. I mean, we had done stand-up comedy together going, going that far back into the, the '80s. But and I remember when he was a weatherman. I know that he had an afternoon talk show first before he became a late-night host. Uh, I never was a friend of his. I never, you know, connected with him really. But he did the ventriloquist week, hmm. as a, and he did it totally as an act of kitsch. 
you know, because because he, you know, how sarcastic he is. Yeah. And um, it was it shocked them because it was one of the highest rated weeks that they've had in years. <laughs> I love and, it. And, and so um, they decided to do it with magicians, uh, have Magic Week, and it wasn't that that successful. Then they decided to bring other ventriloquists back, uh, not not the first five. Which, I mean, seriously, if you think about it, I'm, I'm in a really weird environment where there's probably like, I have like five or six really good competitors on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the rest are good ventriloquists, but they're they're just qu- quite not there yet, or maybe they haven't had the, the breaks that I've had. But there's really very, it's a small core of competitors that I deal with. And they brought in what I call the, the, uh, the, the next tier of, of ventriloquists, and I, I think they were overwhelmed by doing uh, the uh, Late Show with David Letterman because it just didn't come across as, as funny as the first time. But Johnny so, Carson was always very supportive of you. Extremely him. supportive, extremely supportive. He loved variety acts, mm. uh, so, something that uh, Jay Leno was very open about. He did not like variety acts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I remember your, your husband, Kathy, uh, was at a dinner with Jay. And Jay was saying, well, I, I love Ron, I love his work, uh, but every time um, um, a variety act comes on, we can watch the ratings disappear. So we're going to try to stick with just name people only. And I, I turned, turned to Ken, I said, what's wrong with this picture? And he goes, what do you mean? And he said, well, they tape in the afternoon. How are they watching the ratings disappear? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, maybe he's talking about later that night. You know, when yeah, they air, happens, I don't yeah. know. But but uh, uh, Jay and I got along when we were doing stand-up comedy together really, really well. I, I, I was smart, and it's probably the last real smart thing I did other than marrying my wife. Uh, I went to, rather than go to L.A. to explore stand-up comedy, I went to San Francisco. They had a very viable street theater scene. I thought maybe I could make some money doing that. And they had comedy clubs, and they were the first they were the only comedy clubs in all of the continental United States that would pay their performers. If you came down to the improv or catch a rising star or the laugh factory, you went on for free and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the club made all the money. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that, that helped me, my, my first super, super lucky break was that there was a San Francisco standup comedy competition and I joined it and it was the first year it was taped for showtime. And I won it. Oh. It was a big shock to everybody, including me. I won it. And because Showtime liked it, they wanted to have several more stand-up comedy competitions. So rather than do it the San Francisco way, which started with a field of 130 comics Mm -hmm. and stretched over a month at all these comedy clubs all through the Bay Area, those other competitions were just basically one night and handpicked people. Mm-hmm. And then the winners went to New York for a national laugh-off. So I have the distinction of saying that in the national laugh-off, I beat people. I won it that night, and I, and I, was, I was terrified. I was the scariest night of my life. And I won it uh, more than any reason because someone really tried to make me angry. And when I get angry, I forget to be afraid. Mm. So I went out and just gave it everything I had. But I beat Harry Anderson, which which Ken mm-hmm. had managed from yes. Nightport. Yes. I beat Jerry Seinfeld. Wow. I beat Eddie Murphy, you know, people <laughs> who go, who went on to have much bigger, more successful careers than I will ever know. Oh, that's great. But when you do your corporate speaking, because I know you do a lot of that, how do you make the puppets applicable to the clients, the corporate clients? The, the trick that I've learned, um, and it's come, it's come with time, is I, I sometimes the like I, I, IBM was the first company that introduced me to corporate speaking and corporate performing, and they would give me a script and I'd try to memorize it, and it would come across phony because I'm not an IBM person. So mm-hmm. what I did, developed was Billy asking, <clears throat> "Well, okay, here we are at uh, the Chrysler show." I said, "That's right." He says, what do you know about Chrysler? And I said, well, I mean, that's their logo. You know, it said that big giant V. Yeah. And, and he goes, no, that's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and I, I, I and, and so basically, I would tell Billy what I think I knew, and he would twist it and make it wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, not just Billy, any puppet that I was using at the time, um, and that became the, the the way I would do a corporate booking. So it really wasn't about me imparting information. It was more about me finding a safe way to make fun of the com- company. And I bet mm-hmm. they loved it. Um, you mentioned earlier about the uh, the pandemic affecting your work on the Royal Caribbean cruises. Right, right. When you were doing them, what are the most fun stories you remember from those? <laughs> wow. Uh, it's hard work. It really is hard work. I would be flown usually starting at 4 o'clock in the morning from L.A. Uh, to pick up a ship either in the Florida Peninsula or one of the Caribbean islands where I would spend the night. Then the next day I would join the ship and usually have one or two shows that night. Mm-hmm. So it's a real it's a real rough 24 hours. Then I the following night sometimes I'd have a single show and then the rest of the time I had nothing to do. So for the rest of if it's a 7-day cruise I worked two nights and then the other four nights or whatever was left I would have all to myself. However, I would stay on the ship. Old passengers would get off in, in Fort Lauderdale, they get off in Miami, they get off in Orlando, and then new passengers would get on, and I'd stay on, and I'd do part of or half of the next cruise, and then fly home. So if I flew home from a U.S. port, Christmas, everything's great. If I flew home from a Caribbean island, a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I used to do merchandise. I have a, a Disney Channel special that I did called Who's in Charge Here, and I'd have all these DVDs. And I went through Barbados once, and they took them away from me because I landed there, and they said, what do you plan to do with this? I said, I'm selling them on a ship. No, you're trying to sell them in our country. We're taking them. Oh. Couldn't argue. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So so it was, it's it's a tough life. The pay was good. I, I have to I have to admit that. Pay has always been good. But since uh, the cruise ships are no longer working, the CDC has determined, really, it's up to them to determine when it's safe to go back because on a cruise ship, social distancing is impossible. That's true. Yeah, and they're, all, they're big on washing hands constantly. They were, and they still All are. the time. But yeah. I, I, I think they're more, as there's, Royal Caribbean is a very caring company, and I think they care about their crew a lot. Because uh, and there's logical reasons too. There's financial reasons. So they, 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 like like all cruise lines in the early days, they had a big turnover and they had to keep uh, training people. They had to keep teaching people. So I thought, wait a minute, if we if we take better care of our employees, they'll stay, and we don't have to keep paying shelling out for teaching. And so they have an incentive program. They have a financial. I mean, and it's an international group of people. So thanks to Royal Caribbean, I've learned to say thank you. Where's the bathroom? And one more beer, please, in 38 languages. Oh, good. Good for Just you. Just one example. Oh, ask me anything. State of language. Romanian. Mushamesc. Thank you. Uncabera. Onde es toaleta? Where's the bathroom? <laughs> it's Romanian. Important. Uh, uh, French. You know, obviously, you know, you uh, do uh, toilet, you know, uh, uh, Merci. Qu'est-ce que c'est en français? You know, uh, I've learned in German, French, Spanish, uh, Italian, Portuguese, all, all, the, all the major European languages, and then a few from Africa, uh, Swahili. Mm-hmm. You're doing very well. You're using your time Asa- on the ship educationally. Asantisana, <laughs> which is Asantisana, I think, is thank you. You know, uh, I'm trying to think where the one more beer is. Um, I, I, in Arabic, I don't know. I don't ask for beer because I don't drink in that country. Oh, nice. You don't have to. You don't have to learn it. (laughs) No, we'd love to thank our guest today on Late Boomers, Ron Lucas, world-class ventriloquist extraordinaire. Check him out on YouTube. Is there anything else you would like to add, Ron? What about the future of ventriloquism as you see it? Well, I have a business card that I printed last year, and I've upset some people with it. It says, ventriloquism, a dying art on helping to kill it. Oh, no. Oh, it's funny. Oh, no. I just feel like unless I can start contributing, I was very innovative in my earliest years. And now all those innovations have been lifted, shall we say, borrowed by other ventriloquists. It's it's, it's a little disarming to see some of your best bits on uh, America's Got Talent and 
I'm not doing it. Someone else is. So that's yeah. happened a lot. But um, I feel like unless we can come up with some new spin to the art of ventriloquism, and I'm looking, I'm always looking, uh, that I don't think it's really going to last, you know, more than another hundred years. Uh, technology and uh, artificial intelligence will replace it. Well, one of the things I love about your act, though, is when the, the your characters sing, because all of them sing. I love when they sing. Oh, thanks. Because very few ventriloquists can do that, right? Well, I had a good singing voice when I was a kid, so I was just able to, to, to sort of branch that over into the show. Uh, actually, don't ever put me in front of a karaoke, uh, Kathy, because I will freeze up. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I, the puppets sing a lot better than I do. Sure, and they sing beautifully. They do. <laughs> and, and, but your voice sounds wonderful, too. Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So our listeners can go to ronlucas.com. That's R-O-N-N-L-U-C-A-S. Yep. Ron my, with two N's. Yeah, my mom stutters. <laughs> and there you'll find links to his videos. Also, the site run by his fans, ronlucas.net, is very, very good. Thank you so much, Ron. My pleasure. Ron, Ron it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.